1: You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. The Friday stand-in on your number one news and talk station.
2: Chris Smith. Is back with us this week, and we have just opened our lines taking your science questions on uh, any subject. So, uh, do uh, join us. We have uh, stripped science down. We're going to strip science down to its uh, bare essentials. It's your opportunity to satisfy your curiosity about the world we live in and find out more about the weird but also wonderful laws of nature and the intricacies of uh, the human body. Well, Chris, I mean monkey see monkey do. You're going to tell us that monkeys use mind control to break typing speed records.
1: Good morning. Yes, well, there's this interesting story out this week. Uh, it's by researchers at Stanford University, Krishna Shanoi and his colleagues. And what they've done is to get monkeys typing the works of Shakespeare. Now, there are lots of old jokes about if you give enough monkeys enough typewriters, eventually one on the law of averages will reproduce the works of Shakespeare. But this week, some monkeys really have been reproducing Shakespeare. But it is Shakespeare that scientists have told them to reproduce. And actually, the aim of this piece of work was to help people who have paralysis... Because whether it's because of a brain injury or some kind of debilitating disease like motor neuron disease, there are lots of people around who lose the ability to move of their own volition and they have full consciousness, they know what they want to do, but they can't translate their intentions into any kind of actions, and life can be miserable for them. So scientists are trying to develop better brain-computer interfaces. The idea is that you could have a system where a computer eavesdrops on the neurological chatter going on inside your head, learns how to decode that neurological conversation and then turns it into meaningful actions on the part of a robot or some kind of prosthesis. And what this group here have done is to push this a stage further in terms of typing and communication. The way they've done it is they've taken two monkeys and they've implanted into the motor regions of their brain, in other words, the parts of the brain where movements are planned and executed, these arrays of tiny electrodes that can pick up nerve activity, They then watched the monkeys moving with a camera and used a computer program to match up what movements the monkeys made on the camera with corresponding patterns of brain activity so that their program could learn that when a certain pattern of nerve activity was seen, this presaged the monkey making a certain kind of movement. Once they trained the computer like that, they were then able to show the monkey on a screen a virtual computer keyboard, flash up certain keys... And then the monkey had to think as though it were reaching out with its arm and touching the illuminated button. And when they did that, they registered a hit and it typed something, typed virtually. And they were giving the monkey actually to be or not to be as one of the things it could type out. They also had some fun because they clearly have a sense of humour. A banana, a banana, a kingdom for my banana was one of the things they got the monkeys to type. But the crucial detail was, using this system, the monkeys were twice as fast at typing as the existing systems and records we have for typing speed in humans using this kind of system to try to communicate. So it's a massive step forward, and if we bring to bear also big advances made by Google and Apple in using things like predictive text, you may be even able to make this go even better. And this, this really could have a quality of life impact uh, for human patients. So hope for the future, uh, especially for people
2: with paralysis. Indeed. Well, let's take calls then. Um, we're going to start uh, with Rebecca from uh, North Riding.
0: Hi.
1: Hello, Rebecca. Morning,
0: Rebecca. Thanks for hi, Chris. Um, your general knowledge is amazing. Um, I wanted to know why men are hairier than women. I know in apes, where we're supposed to have come from, it's not really the case. So why why is it in humans that men are hairier than women? <laughs>
1: Hi, Rebecca. Well, this is an example of what we call sexual dimorphism. In other words we're the same species, we're both humans, but there are differences in appearance between males and females. Now, in humans, yes, we've got a hairiness difference, because men tend to, over their body, have more hair, but on the top of their head, especially as they get older, have less hair than women. If you look at other animals, they have different kinds of sexual dimorphism. In some species, the male is tiny compared with the female. In other species, it's the other way around. You have a huge uh, male and a very small female. If you look at The African uh, lion population, for example, you see male lions have a giant mane, big body and a roar. Female lions don't have that mane. They look quite different. There are various reasons why this can occur, but the answer comes down to the E word, evolution. For some reason, historically, various traits have been selected by the opposite sex to send out a signal about mating fitness probably males uh, if they are reproductively very fit are likely to have more testosterone than males that are reproductively less fit and testosterone this is humans testosterone makes bits of the body hairier it encourages hair growth except it has the opposite effect on the top of the head where um, over time especially if you carry a certain copy of a gene you tend to lose your hair on your head but not elsewhere on your body way too much testosterone well let's go to chris
2: in uh, greenland chris greenland rather in pretoria Uh, good morning i'll put a question and then i'll On two occasions now, I've found a cockroach in our microwave, and to sort it out, what I've done is to turn the microwave up to maximum and run it for five minutes. On each occasion, the cockroach then happily flew out of the microwave and also escaped through the open window of the kitchen, never to return.
1: Did you eat it, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> so no, i, I I'm kidding. So your question is, of course... So you want to know, why Why did the cockroach evade microwave nuking on all occasions? The answer is that cockroaches are mobile, they have legs, they can move around, and the microwaves going on inside the microwave oven are quite large. What do I mean by that? Well, when we talk about waves, waves have a function or a feature called a wave length. And the wave length is the distance between the peak of one of one wave and the peak of the next wave in the sequence. Now the frequency of a microwave oven that you cook with is about 1.5 gigahertz, 1.45 gigahertz, in other words billion waves a second and given the speed of light is 3 times 10 to the 8 metres per second that means that the size of the microwaves inside the oven is about 12 centimetres from one peak to the next wave. So that means that the distance between the hot spots is at least six centimetres because it's peaks and troughs where the heat is most concentrated. Given a cockroach is only a centimetre or two, um, I'm assuming you haven't got mutant cockroaches in your kitchen, then the cockroach relative to the size of the microwaves is relatively small. And therefore, as soon as it feels it's getting hot, what it does is the same as you would do when you're walking down a street. You can feel where it's hot and sunny, you would move into the shade Well the cockroach can sense where the heat is and where the cooler areas are and so it will just scurry around to put itself in the cooler spots between the peaks of the waves all the time and uh, it'll get lots of exercise doing it, especially if you have a turntable in the microwave and it's got to keep dancing around to stay in the cool spots but it will avoid the hot spots and therefore can avoid being cooked. If you fixed it in one position and you focus that position on a hot spot in the microwave it would definitely cook. Chris Smith is your
2: Naked Scientist. More from him, and we're taking more of your calls after this short at break.
1: 702 and Cape Talk.
0: The Naked Scientist.
1: The
2: Naked Scientist is, of course, Chris Smith, the man with an incredible um, knowledge, He's a medical doctor and a scientist, and we're taking more of your calls to him. Uh, We're starting this time around with Chris from West Rand. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi, Chris. Um, Uh, You know what, we eat red peppers, green lettuce, white rice, etc. It might sound a silly question, but then what happens to the colour? Because by the time it all comes through our system, it's all brown.
1: (laughs) Well, there's several bits to unpack in that. First of all, why are certain plants certain colours? Well, lettuce is green because that's the leaves of the plant, and the leaves are rich in the pigment chlorophyll which is the photosynthetic pigment that green leafy plants use to absorb the sun's energy and drive the photosynthesis reaction that merges water and carbon dioxide together to make sugars. And that's what feeds the plant, makes the plant grow, and ultimately makes you grow. Now, the other food items you mentioned, things like red peppers, they are not the leaves, they are the fruit of the plant. And this means they're not governed by having to photosynthesize because they've got a plant to do that for them. The role of a fruit is to attract things that might want to eat the fruit and in the process ingest the seeds and then egest, poo out the seeds somewhere else and help to spread the seeds and therefore distribute the plant, disperse the plant. Now, the way plants actually put colour into things such as their fruits is that they usually use highly colored molecules including things like carotenoids carotenoids the clues in the name the same way that carrots are orange they have carotenoids they ones called beta carotene there are others beet roots have a, a, a pigment which is a purple color which is called anthocyanin these are big molecules usually lots of rings of um, carbon atoms Lots of electrons are what we call delocalised in these rings and the size and shape of the molecules means that they interact with light waves of a certain size and shape and preferentially absorb some colours of light and reflect others at you and that's what gives them their colour but these molecules can be digested as they go through the system or because they're well and truly spread out once they've gone through your system then the colour is no longer there all in one place making something look like that colour. Now, with beetroot, you can get a side effect. There are a proportion of people in the population, I forget exactly what fraction of the population, and it will vary by by geography, uh, carry a particular gene, but it will give you something called beet urea. If you eat a lot of beetroot, the pigment, the anthocyanin that's in there, does not get broken down adequately in the intestine. It is water-soluble and it will come out of the intestine into your bloodstream and it will get filtered and concentrated in your urine and this will tinge your urine a red colour. And people then go to the doctor saying, I'm really worried, I'm peeing blood. And then the doctor asks, have you eaten a lot of beetroot recently? And then people, invariably, if they've got this, will say, well, yes, it's funny, I, I have. And that's the reason.
2: Well, let's go to and let's take a call from Nasir now, who is in Cape Town. Nasir,
1: yes, hi, good morning.
2: My question is: I was looking at my reflection in a tablespoon,
0: and in the concave side of the tablespoon, my reflection was upside down. But when I turned the spoon over, the convex side, but reflection was right side up. How is that possible?
1: Yeah. Well. What's happening? You've got to think of this and and space scientists know about this very well. Because the spoon is acting as a parabolic reflector, a mirror. And when the light goes into the spoon, because the surface is curved, the light waves don't come straight back out at you. They are uh, reflected at a slight angle because of the curvature of the spoon. So if we're looking at the concave, the bit you would dip into the sugar bowl and have a pile of sugar on, that reflects the light to a focal point, which is probably a centimetre or so, depending on how big the spoon is, in front of the spoon. The light waves then... Go through that focal point and by the time they're coming back to your eye, they've gone through the focal point and they're then coming back out of the focal point and spreading out again. This means that because something from the top of the spoon has been reflected towards the middle of the spoon, gone through that focal point and is now going down towards the bottom of the spoon, and something at the bottom of the spoon bowl has been reflected through the focal point upwards and is now carrying on upwards you flip the image upside down. The reverse side of the spoon is a curved surface and is therefore spreading out the light that hits it from the minute it hits it, and therefore you just see a bigger version of yourself. You don't see an upside-down version of yourself.
2: Thanks very much. We go now to Adrian, who's in Cape Town. Adrian?
0: Yes, good morning. Um, My question is also a medical-related one. Why is it that try-as-you-may... It's seemingly impossible to keep your eyes open when you
1: sneeze. Uh, Yeah, well, there's a protective reflex there, Adrian, and the reason for this is that the corner of your eye closest to your nose, if you look along your lower eyelid, there's a little black dot, and that is called the punctum, and it is the plug plug hole for tears. Tears from the lacrimal gland run into the upper outer edge of the eye, across the eyeball, clean it, disinfect it, and then they drain away down that nasolacrimal duct, which is a connection from the eye into your nose to get rid of the tears. When you sneeze, you dramatically increase the pressure inside your airways, including in your nose. If you were to leave your eyes open, and you can sneeze with your eyes open if you really force yourself to, and I've done this when I've been driving and needed to sneeze and it would be dangerous to shut my eyes, so I forced myself to keep them open and because I was intrigued to disprove the myth that your eyes pop out if you sneeze without them uh, closed. When you do that, if you don't screw up your eyes, the high pressure in your nose forces the flow of tears the wrong way up your tear duct. And out of that punctum and that would also include all the snot that's in your nose so by closing your eyes you screw up the punctum and force it closed and make the pressure in there much higher than the pressure in your nose and this stops anything flowing from your nose up into your eyes because snot in your eyes is snot very nice. (laughs) L'Oreal is in four ways. Um, Hi Chris, Um, morning. I wanted to ask you the question
0: In the daytime, your salivary glands produce saliva. Do they continue to produce it at night? Because in the daytime, if you sit and you don't um, swallow your saliva, you can take a deep breath and choke on it. But then what happens at night? Do your salivary glands, do they stop producing saliva that we don't choke in our sleep?
1: Yes, absolutely. When you go to sleep, all of your normal body patterns change. Uh, Your control of things like saliva production, tear production, everything else like that is all under automatic control from a branch of your nervous system, the the autonomic nervous system. And this tunes its activity according to how busy you are. So when you go to sleep, the rate of tear production slows down and that's why your eyes can be dry and have sleep in them when you wake up in the morning. That's the collected... dried out tears in the corner of the eye and also your mouth often feels dry and many people will know the phenomenon of stinky breath in the morning and this is because saliva has an antibacterial effect and when you go to sleep at night you make less saliva to avoid yourself having a mouthful and making your pillow saturated and choking on it and as a result you don't have as much of the antibacterial effect washing away the bugs in your mouth and so the bugs in your mouth have a field day and a bacterial banquet on any food you haven't cleaned away from your teeth before you went to bed, nor to you and as a result they make lots of stinky, whiffy products, which is what gives people morning breath. And that's why having some breakfast and reinforcing the saliva flow then makes that go away.
2: We're going now to the Johannesburg CBD. Mzugisi. Yes, uh, good morning, yes. Chris.
1: Good
2: morning. Um, yeah, I've got uh, three brothers. One um, is older than me and the uh, other two are younger than me. Um, all three of them are taller than I am. And uh, my parents are also taller than me. Um, I'm, I'm the shortest in the family, unfortunately. Um, is there anything I can do? Uh, I'm 28 now. Is there anything I can do to be a bit taller?
1: Well, look, you're in good company, OK? Because I don't know exactly how tall you are, but I, I'm not a giant either. And the only thing I can recommend, two things. One, stilts. Or two, move to Japan or Guatemala, because as we have learned from a recent study published in the journal eLife, which looked at many people all around the world over the last 100 years and how high they are, um, the the people in Japan have got taller, but not as tall as people in the West and in South Africa, and therefore you will be relatively a giant in in those countries, and especially in uh, the Middle American countries. The reason that there is this diversity in height is because height is what we call a polygenic trait. Lots of genes all contribute to how high you are and they set your height potential, how high you could become. But superimposed on that... Is the environment in which you grow up? Because although you may have the genetic potential to reach a certain height, if you are not healthy, if you don't have enough food, if various other things go wrong in your life, this can retard your ability to, to reach that genetic potential. And I had a oh, I have a very good friend who um, he, his parents grew up in Bangladesh. Uh, he was best man at my wedding, and he he is enormous compared to his parents. They are obviously genetically highly related to him because they produced him. He has the genetic potential they do, but because he's grown up in in England and had a good diet and uh, been healthy, he's reached his developmental genetic potential and is therefore about a foot taller than his parents. Stephen in Somerset West. Hi, hi Chris. Uh, Thanks for taking my call.
0: Look, I'm in my early 80s and I've always lived a very active life. But the last six or seven years, my sense of balance has been getting worse and worse and worse, and, and walking is becoming more and more difficult, in fact, a hard walk at night at all. I, I first analysed as being as having motor neuron disease, and then I went out a second opinion, and was analysed as being CIAP, which is chronic idiopathic and, noc- and noxial neuropathy. Now, all I want to know is, is this going to get worse? Is, can it be arrested at all? Um... Uh, is it terminal? Uh, and, and and is there any medication one can take for this very debilitating nervous disease?
1: Hello, Michael. I'm really sorry to hear about that. And it's a shame when, you know, you're saying you're so fit and active at a, at a ripe old age and now you're having these problems. Unfortunately everything you know it does not improve with age and something's got to go wrong with us eventually because we don't all live forever and it just depends what gets you and in some people their heart claps out in other people the nervous system starts to to fail the problem with the nervous system is that we have to make what we're born with last a lifetime because with a few rare exceptions the brain cells you're born with are the ones that you must make last throughout your life and when things start to go wrong with the nervous system although we can do quite good symptomatic and control. We can't put right damage that's already been done and it will depend on what's causing your condition and And I think it, it is right to get this properly investigated because there are some things which can be done if this is an inflammatory condition or an immune condition doing this then that might be the reason. You might have some kind of demyelinating polyneuropathy or something which which can be an immune problem and, and it might be meaning your balance is off because the signals which are coming from your feet and lower legs are not getting up to your brain properly to inform your balance system. On the other hand and the balance system could be becoming a bit less good as you've got older, it does in everybody, and it could be a combination of all of those things. So certainly before you condemn yourself to being totally clapped out, I would get a, a proper medical workup and make sure that you've had a good neurological opinion and they've investigated all these avenues because it may well be that there's something reversible there which could restore you back to your former vigour. Chris
2: Smith, thank you very much. That's how we come to it's pleasure. the end of this week's Naked Scientist.